Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This last week I had the awesome adventure of driving 1800 miles across the country. I honestly did enjoy it and I'm not being sarcastic. If I was being sarcastic, I'd tell you I enjoyed the two flat tires I had along the way. Nonetheless, that much time in the car gave me the opportunity to listen to several different audiobooks, some of which I had already started. The ideas from these different books found a melting spot somewhere in the middle, and I discovered some really valuable thoughts that I think are extremely relevant for chiropractors. My associate mentioned to me this week that he thought learning to adjust would be the most difficult thing to learn in chiropractic. He now thinks the most difficult thing to learn is how to bring patients into the office. You know you can win them over and generate referrals once they're there, but how do you get them there in the first place? Times are changing rapidly, and social media is obviously the way it'll work in the future. But maybe we're thinking all wrong about our strategy of how we do that. So if you'll indulge me for a few minutes, I'd like to share from these books some thoughts with you and hopefully help you to gain a new perspective on life in chiropractic. mean to be the best. I've rarely met a chiropractor or chiropractic student for that matter who didn't think they were the best, on the road to becoming the best, or obsessed with the idea of becoming the best. I think that's great. What would be the point of working for mediocrity? What we rarely think about is what it means to be the best. In sports, it's pretty easy to know who's the best. In a set amount of time, one player or team will have more points than the other, and we'll all be forced to recognize that they are the best, whether we like them or not. But how do we determine who's the best in chiropractic? In fact, how do we even know if we're any good or not? There is no set time, and there's nobody keeping score, which means our estimation of how good we are is often based on our expectations for ourselves. If we have low expectations, then we might think we're good before we've even accomplished anything of value. If, on the other hand, we have high expectations, then we're likely to become frustrated by our inability to reach those expectations, even though they might be completely unrealistic. So again, how do we determine who's the best, and what makes them the best? According to Simon Sinek, this is because chiropractic isn't a finite game like basketball or football. Instead, it's an infinite game like most businesses. The difference is that the goal of an infinite game isn't to be the winner when the time runs out, but the goal of an infinite game is to simply stay in the game, more like the game of chess. Staying in the game requires a different set of skills than we would find in a finite game. An infinite game demands that we forge a relationship with our customers instead of seeing them as milestones to be overtaken. You know the question people ask, how many patients a week do you see? Whoever sees the most must be the best, right? Of course not. I could see a thousand patients a week if I had no regard for their unique circumstances or the quality of my care. There's an inverse relationship between quality and quantity. As quantity goes up, quality goes down. You can decrease the quantity and still have low quality, but you cannot continually increase the quantity without it eventually having a negative impact on your quality. I recently had a conversation with a young doctor who told me, much of what I see passing itself off as high-volume Gonstead is really just the Flying 7 with Gonstead-like moves substituted for diversified moves. But the assessment is still missing. I think that's a very astute and observant assessment. It's also important to recognize that this is not a static target or the same for everyone. For example, when I first started, 10 patients a day was about all I could see and still maintain the quality of care I knew my patients needed and deserved. Could I have seen more? Sure, but the drop-off in quality would have been very steep. 
Sometime later, I could see 20 a day and still maintain the same quality as before. The rub is that when people are good, they often do high quality work at a fast pace. This means that the easiest way to fake competency is to simply move quickly and cause people to infer competence based on the speed at which you work. I don't wanna to be too harsh about this, but that's a lie you tell yourself that eventually becomes a lie you tell everyone else. And it's not unique to chiropractic. I notice this behavior in almost every industry, but I see it for what it really is and I refuse to fall victim to that particular trap. Being the best isn't about seeing a ton of patients. It's about doing the best for every patient. Yes, Dr. Gonstead saw 700 or more patients every single week, but he worked 20 hours a day and six and a half days a week to do it. So let's do some simple math. Let's say he saw 1,000 patients per week. He worked 130 hours per week to do it. That comes out to 7.7 .7 patients per hour. That is a very workable pace. Are you seeing more or fewer patients per hour than that? I've always said that six to eight patients per hour is my sweet spot. From there, if I wanna see more patients, then I need to work more hours. It's as simple as that. I'm not trying to call anybody out or point fingers, but if you're working at a faster pace than that, it's a good bet that you're missing a lot of what you should be finding. So what's your motivation? Is it quality or quantity? If your answer is quantity, then what you're really saying is that your motivation is money. The problem with using money as your only measure of success is that you end up creating a sales business, whether you intend to or not. What you may not know is that there's a typical lifestyle for a sales business, and it looks something like this. Depending on how good you are at sales, the business will initially shoot up, then it will plateau, and then it will drop off the face of the earth. This happens because the customers will eventually realize that sales leads to making promises you can't keep. And once they figure out that you value money more than them, that's when you experience plateau and ultimately failure. Sales businesses are rarely sustainable for the long haul because they aren't based on substance, even though they might appear to be initially. Have you ever experienced multi-level marketing? Some of these businesses appear to be based on substance, and the more substance they appear to have, the faster and higher they shoot up. But all multi-level marketing eventually follows the same pattern, and it will eventually plateau and then drop off like the first hill of a roller coaster. I don't think that's the kind of business you want to build, but especially not by accident. When I was still a student, there was this chiropractic group that would brag about how they would see a thousand patients a day and only work three days a week. They built practices and seminars and sold books. It seemed like there was no limit to how big they could grow their audience. And every struggling chiropractor wanted to know what they were doing in the hopes they could emulate them and reap the same results. Honestly, their technique was terrible and their marketing was completely self-serving. Yet, in spite of that, they grew seemingly without limit. They were making tons of money with plenty of time off for vacation to enjoy that money. The problem was that they were always starting new offices. I found this curious because I knew most people would assume this was just a sign of how successful they were. But I suspected there was another reason. It eventually turned out that my suspicion was correct, and it eventually became common knowledge. What they didn't like to talk about was the fact that they had to constantly start new offices because the ones they had would shoot up like a missile, plateau for a minute, and then disappear seemingly overnight. I just looked up the group I'm referring to, but of course, it doesn't exist anymore. I looked up the former leader to find that they have a new group, which, no doubt, is another sales business targeting a new generation who have no idea about the sales business of the past. This is an extreme example, but extreme examples are often informative of natural patterns that might be affecting us. If your practice is experiencing the same effect, but it's doing it much slower, then it might be very difficult to recognize the pattern. Even though you have plenty of time to change course and right the ship, 
you are unlikely to do it because you simply don't recognize the pattern in front of you and your eventual demise becomes much more insidious. Again, I'm not saying any of this to accuse or demean anyone, but I'm saying it as a warning because I know how easy it is to fall into some of these patterns and behaviors. If the purpose of an infinite game is to stay in the game, then this fundamentally changes how we play the game. It's not about trying to outdo anyone, but it's about constant adaptability because that's what will keep us in the game. Winning is about finding a magic formula, playing to your strengths, and executing time and time again. But the infinite game demands adaptability because what is working for us today will not necessarily work for us tomorrow. This is exactly what we see in marketing as social media is now the most effective way to market a practice. Many years ago, Jim Collins wrote the fantastic book, Built to Last. This book chronicles several businesses that have stood the test of time, and he compares them to others in their industry who failed in an effort to cover what they did right to create sustainability. It's a fantastic book, but here's the incredible part. After the crash of 2008, Jim Collins wrote the book, How the Mighty Fall. This book discloses that no less than half of the businesses in the original Good to Great book, all of which are household names, had fallen, and many of them had gone out of business permanently. This had happened because they had violated their own principles and created their own demise. The ultimate cause of their destruction was hubris. When President Obama described certain businesses as, quote, too big to fail, they thought he was talking about them. In retrospect, he clearly was not. In fact, if you read any of Jim Collins' books, including Good to Great, another fantastic book, you'll find that hubris is almost always the cause of failure for any business. The antidote for hubris is to constantly reinvent your business based on the environment and focus on execution every single day. 2020 taught us a lot about the need for adaptability, and the unidentified lack of adaptability in many businesses and industries led to a devastating loss of business all over the country. The other fundamental change dictated by the infinite game is that we must establish relationships with our patients and not just view them as a means to an end on our way to victory. To that end, comes a radical concept of figuring out who you are for and supporting them. This information comes from a book by Jeff Henderson called Know What You're For. If most marketing was a person, it would be considered a narcissist. That's because most marketing is basically, look at me, I'm special, I'm better than everyone else. That approach might make sense if you were in a finite game. In an infinite game, it makes a lot more sense to do the opposite. Instead of saying why everyone should look at you, you can forge relationships by talking about how you and why you are looking at other people. I know that might sound strange at first, but this is the cutting edge of what's working because, surprise, surprise, things have changed. I think the reason so many have become obsessed with the idea of being the best is because being the best is what's sold. I often laugh when I think of all the patients over the years who've told me about their orthopedist or their neurologist, and they all insisted that their doctor was the best in the nation in his specialty. Really? They were all the best? How fortuitous that all of my patients had the benefit of seeing the best in the country. Of course, this is what sold, so that's what everyone was selling. I can't imagine a patient telling me about the orthopedist and saying, oh, he's definitely below average, but he's got good jokes. I think I'll let him cut on me anyway. So the premise of the book is that you need to figure out who you're for and then publicly support them. For example, instead of creating social media posts that scream, look at me, you can figure out who you're for and interact with their posts to let everyone you know see that you're for them and why you support them. You can immediately see how this would make your marketing a lot less narcissistic. Another example would be to establish a contest that creates behavior you would like to encourage, like better eating or exercise. 
As people reach milestones, celebrate them and let them know you are for them and the positive changes they are creating in their lives. Those are just two examples, but this concept is really more of a paradigm shift that changes how you approach everything you do, and not just a few behaviors with an ulterior motive hidden behind. I've recently become interested in something that I think is a very interesting case study that I think is valuable for anyone who's attempting to learn this often challenging technique that we use. Jimmy Johnson currently races the number 48 car in the IndyCar series on a part-time schedule. So far, he's failed to win any races, and this last weekend, he finished next to last. That might not sound like anything to celebrate, but if you're unfamiliar with racing, then it might be helpful to know who Jimmy Johnson is. Jimmy Johnson started out racing motorcycles at the age of four. After high school, he began racing in the off-road series, winning Rookie of the Year honors. He then transitioned to late model cars, again winning Rookie of the Year honors. When he first began racing stock cars, he was spotted by Jeff Gordon, who convinced Rick Hendrick to sign him to a full-time ride. Jimmy Johnson then went on to win seven NASCAR champions, championships, tied with Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt for the most ever, and he is the only person to win five consecutive championships. So, it's safe to say, Jimmy Johnson knows how to drive a race car. After last season in NASCAR, Jimmy Johnson decided to retire, and then pursued a career in IndyCar open-wheel racing, mostly because he needed a new challenge. The adventure has certainly proven to be a challenge, but here's the part that got my interest. A few weeks ago, in Detroit, Jimmy had a problem with his car and finished 37 laps down. The very next day, they raced the same track, and he finished one lap down. The interviewer asked how he felt being the great Jimmy Johnson and finishing a lap down. He said, I didn't finish a lap down. I finished 36 laps better than yesterday. On almost every single social media post he makes, he includes a hashtag that I love. It simply says, no finish lines. Jimmy Johnson may not be winning yet, but he has a mentality of a winner who is playing an infinite game, and there's no doubt he will get there soon. He doesn't beat himself up over a poor performance. He sees it for what it is. He gets to turn some laps with the best in the industry, and every single turn is a learning opportunity. He's actually said that. He recently did an interview with a young kid, and the kid asked him how it was going. Jimmy said, I'm doing pretty good on the straightaways. It's really just the turns that are giving me trouble. I have no doubt that Jimmy knows that at some point he's going to be really good at this. So this time, he's doing what he wishes he would have done earlier in his career. He's enjoying the process and relishing every opportunity to learn. I was at a race many years ago now, and I was down on pit road. I used to go to several races a year. The drivers were coming out, and their crews were pushing their cars out to pit road. Some of the drivers would sign autographs, while others would ignore the crowds like it was all beneath them. When Jimmy's car came out, he was nowhere to be found. You could hear people in the crowd asking, where's Jimmy? Oh, wait, there he is. Jimmy was at the back of his car, pushing it out to pit road, along with the rest of his crew. He is the only driver that I've ever seen do that. My point is that success at the highest level comes from a very different place. Many people lack the character or the competence to even have a shot at it. Jimmy Johnson might be finishing at the back of the pack for now, but I don't think anybody expects him to stay there. Nonetheless, he doesn't exhibit any false bravado or arrogance. Instead, he readily admits that he isn't there yet, but he's working his hardest, and he's quick to poke fun at himself along the way. If I was still a student and trying to figure this Gonstead thing out, I would try to exemplify Jimmy Johnson's behavior because it's exactly what it takes to get there. He isn't trying to fake it until he makes it. He's just trying to make it. Faking it takes too much time that could be used for making it. I can't say that I was ever a fan of Jimmy Johnson's NASCAR career, but I'm quickly becoming a fan of his indie career, even if he never wins a race, but I'm sure he will. 
On a somewhat related note, I do a lot of cycling. I love it for the mental development aspect more than even the physical benefits. I haven't ridden much in the last eight months, so this weekend I did 50 miles. They weren't just 50 ugly miles, but they were 50 painful miles. Those 50 painful miles gave me some time to think about how we deal with pain, disappointment, and frustration. And in this life, there will be pain. On one of my rides, I was just getting started, and I had a pain in the front of my right hip. For a brief moment, I thought, my hip hurts. I better stop. That thought existed for such a short time that I almost didn't even recognize its existence. I then realized that most of my life in athletics has trained me to push thoughts like that out of my mind when they, do, when they don't serve my purpose. The longer you let a thought like that dwell in your mind, the greater the likelihood that you'll give in to that thought. I remember the first time I was in a car and I heard someone say out loud that they had a hankering for fast food. So what, I thought. I don't acknowledge thoughts like that, so I didn't understand why someone would verbalize it. Since I wasn't driving, next thing I know, we're in the drive through lane. Do you want anything? Wow. It was so much harder to say no when we were sitting in the drive through lane than it was when we were simply driving down the street. That was when I first understood this idea, that the longer you hold the thought, the greater the likelihood that you'll give in to the thought. If negative defeating thoughts are taking hold of you and stalling your progress, the solution is simply to push them aside as soon as possible and don't entertain them. I know that's easier said than done, but the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Yesterday, my eight-year-old daughter did a 10-kilometer ride. I knew the biggest obstacle would be pain that would make her want to quit. I told her that it didn't matter how fast she moved or how hard the ride was. The key was to just keep moving. And that's the same thing I would say to anyone who feels like they are struggling with this work. I've spent countless hours with students, many of whom weren't even in my class, helping them to improve their adjusting, not by aiming for or expecting perfection, but by finding the next key step and building their technique like stacking one brick on top of another. From my time playing football to weightlifting and now with cycling, I refuse to acknowledge the feeling of pain because I know it leads to quitting. Instead, I ask myself, is this a pain I can work through? Is this a pain that will make me stronger? In the case of my hip pain, I was pretty sure a change in angle would release the pressure. So I stood up to pedal for a bit, and when I sat back down, the pain was gone. I sure was glad I didn't quit. Another great thing about cycling is that I can take quitting off the table altogether. I can decrease my cadence and my resistance, and as long as I'm still pedaling, I'm making progress, even if it isn't at the pace I would like. The same thing happens in life, and as you're learning this technique, the pace of your improvement isn't nearly as important as just continuing to move forward. Finally, let me mention Horst Schultze. If you're unfamiliar with that name, he's the genius behind the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. Horst Schultze has a unique genius when it comes to understanding customer service. If you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A restaurant, then I'm sure you're familiar with what will happen if you say thank you to any of their employees. Every employee is trained and strongly encouraged to respond with the words, my pleasure. What you may not know is that this policy was implemented after the founder and CEO of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, stayed at a Ritz-Carlton hotel, and one of the hotel employees responded to his thanks with those simple words. He liked the way it sounded and chose to introduce it to his employees. The phrase that Chick-fil-A is most famous for actually came from the mind of Horst Schultze and the Ritz-Carlton. But it doesn't end there. Chick-fil-A kitchen staff have revealed that their restaurant motto is, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. It turns out, that's the exact phrase upon which Horst Schultze built the entire Ritz-Carlton brand. In case you're wondering, Horst Schultze has written a brilliant book on the subject entitled Excellence Wins. My favorite part of this book is when he addresses the topic of how he deals with customers 
who think they can behave like jackasses just because they're the customer and you have to do whatever they want in the name of customer service. This is important because it seems many miss the opportunity to provide great customer service to the majority for fear of the minority who will take advantage of it. When you know how to deal with that minority, then it frees you up to give the great customer service that will complete the difference. I realize I've jumped around a bit here, but all these different resources had a common meeting point that really changed how I thought of providing services to the community. So let me end by listing all these books so you can dive deeper on your own. Most of these books are in Audible format, so if you're a student and don't have time or energy to read, you can always use Audible in your free time to feed your mind. I know, what free time? So first is Know What You're, know what you're For by Jeff Henderson. This book is about avoiding the narcissistic tendency to focus on yourself and to build a brand identity based on your ability to promote others and what they're doing for your community. Next is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. This book is about redefining what it means to win in business. Instead of crushing the competition, your focus should be to stay in the game. Staying in the game means building relationships where people are so dependent on you that they can't imagine life without you. That's how you stay in the game. Don't aim for national fame. It might feel good, but what good does it do? Just become known in your community, the people you can actually make a difference for. You can always grow from there. Then there is Excellence Wins by Horst Schultze. This is one of my favorite books. He is certainly a genius when it comes to customer service, and a trip inside his mind is guaranteed to yield positive improvement. I didn't mention it previously, but the book Be Our Guest by the Disney Institute is another great book for combining customer service with an outstanding experience. Not all of their ideas are feasible for small businesses, but when you understand the Disney mentality, you can implement these ideas for any size business. I have two more books that I didn't specifically mention, but they were influential in completing my thoughts on the subject. The first is The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. They are the authors of Made to Stick, another excellent book if you're looking for ways to make your ideas more tangible for the public. The Power of Moments is about making experiences that have stickiness so they create a learning opportunity. This is something that can take patient education to another level. And finally, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. This book addresses the often neglected ingredient of timing. Perfect timing makes things better than they are, and poor timing makes things worse than they are. If we can harness the power of good timing, then we can give ourselves the best opportunity for success by building momentum along the way. Well, I hope you found this to be beneficial. We have so much going on right now as we're putting the finishing touches on the Gonstead Extravaganza in just a few short weeks. We have a lot of very special things planned, and it'll be a very busy weekend. I want to thank everyone who's reached out to me all over the world in the last few weeks. I will always do my best to respond to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for your support. And if you haven't done it already, please leave us a review so we can get ranked higher and we can bring Gone State Chiropractic to more people. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.